Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome back to our online service. Grateful to be here with you, worshiping together. Um, we are continuing in our series that we're calling Doctrine, where we're looking at just some core doctrines of the Christian faith. And today we're going to be studying what is one of the most important days in all of recorded human history. Um, and this day that we're going to be looking at is a day that if you don't understand it, if you don't have a right perspective on it, then the rest of human history makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you'll be left wondering. Um, and so before I jump in and tell you what we're going to be looking at, let me start by saying this, uh, introductory uh, introduction in this way. Something has gone terribly wrong. Um, I know for many of us, myself included, in fact, I, I, would, I would say all of us, when we look at the world around us, um, we feel a sense of frustration. We, sense of, uh, we have a sense of discouragement, bewilderment. We're perplexed on why the world operates the way that it does, why people behave the way they do, why the systems and structures in which we interact with on an everyday basis seem to be broken and fractured at their core. Uh, and this is, this is on a global scale, right? All over the place. And even on a micro level, when we kind of look down into our lives, into the nitty gritty, into our everyday, and we, uh, we see the people that we love, um, we see our families, we see our friends, and we look at them and they are walking through suffering. They're walking through uh, loss, evil, death, sickness, mourning, pain. Um, we see and sense all of this, and it's ever-present in our world. We turn on the news, we listen to podcasts, we, uh, we're perusing the internet, and we are confronted with um, macro and micro brokenness on every level. Um, this is an inescapable reality that you and I are faced with on an everyday basis. And what I find very curious is that both Christians and non-Christians alike sense this. Both Christians and non-Christians alike cannot accept that the world as we know it today is as it should be. Um, something, whether you are Christian, non-Christian, have a sense that something has gone terribly wrong. Um, and this is not to say that there has not been sincere, incredible efforts to right the wrongs. I mean, wars are fought because of this, right? Uh, armies have been sent out to kill the bad guys. Um, although each side believes that the other side that they're killing is the bad guy. So we can't get a good sense on who the bad guys really are. Uh, there's been innumerable amounts of money spent on programs and systems trying to improve the lives of the citizens. That's in fact why government even exists. A government exists to collectively gather resources for the betterment of their citizens. Um, Education has been broadened and has been expanded and has been built upon so that 
with, with this very undergirding, that if we would just know better, and if we would know more, if we would uh, climb the pinnacles of education, it would improve our lives. We would no longer face the suffering and injustices and the evils that we uh, face on a day-to-day basis. All of this has been tried. Um, all of this has been worked on. More money has been thrown at it. More nonprofits, more agencies, more governments, and more people trying to do more good to right the wrongs that we experience in our world today. With this at its hope, maybe we can make this a better place to be. Um, but try as we might, uh, we seem to take one step forward and ten steps back sometimes. Or five steps forward and one step back. Nothing seems to be a fix. It seems that on every level, every one of our efforts, there seems to be no solution at hand. And as a pastor, um, let me just tell you that this is um, most assuredly the most painful part of the job. Um, One of the primary things that we do as pastors and church leaders is that we get, unfortunately, a front row and a front row seat to sin and the effects of sin and the carnage that sin has on the lives of individuals, on the lives of the people that it affects, uh, and in the lives of those that surround uh, much of sin. Uh, And really, on an almost everyday basis, I'm given an awareness that something has gone terribly wrong. Um, That the world that you and I operate in is not as it should be. That people treat one another in ways that they should not treat one another. People harm one another. People... um, lash out against one another in ways that we shouldn't. And so today, what we're going to be looking at, uh, the doctrine that we're going to be looking at, and it's so much more than a theological category, it should devastate us. It is the doctrine of the fall. The day in human history that, was, that we were forever changed. Um, and we're going to be looking at a section of Scripture that if we don't understand it, we will not understand the world in which we live and operate in. And so let's start here with this question. Um, Knowing that the world is not as it should be, why is that? Where did this take place? What went wrong? And the Bible gives us answer to this. So here's the question. Where did sin originate? Well, we find it as we have been going through Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, Uh, It did not take long uh, for the world to be broken as we know it and for sin to enter into our world. And let me just say this at the outset. For those of us or for those of you that um, maybe you've grown up in the church for a really long time uh, and maybe you're, oh, I know all this. This is all just review. Um, You're kind of a smug Christian and you think, oh, I've already done all this. I know all this. Let me just say this. 
I don't think that any of us really can fully comprehend the depths of Genesis chapter 3. If you can read it and you can easily just breeze past it as, oh, I've heard this before, then the devastating effects of sin do not fall heavily upon you. This is not, like I said, just a doctrinal um, categorical understanding. This should have emotional effects on us. It should devastate us when we read this because every single piece of our lives is affected by Genesis chapter 3 in devastating, harmful ways. And if you don't have a grip on Genesis chapter 3, you will not understand the world in which you live. And if you are unmoved by Genesis chapter 3, I would ask you to really check your heart and to examine um, your heart and mind and how God has wired you and how you should be responding to the Word of God in such a dramatic text that we're going to find ourselves in. So here we go. Um, Genesis 3. We're going to just start walking through and unpacking. Genesis 3, we're going to be um, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Now the serpent. Okay, the serpent, the Bible later reveals to us in Revelation, is uh, Satan. So we're introduced, so before we had the garden, we had everything perfect, it was God, it was God making, it was God speaking, it was God creating, it was God in perfect harmony, and now in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to this one called the serpent. The Bible does not record the fall of Satan and, and the demons, or the fallen angels, but Satan is a created being. He's an angel. He did not want to worship or love God. He became proud in his heart. And Isaiah and Ezekiel in the scriptures say and tell us then later as we move through the Bible that Satan was cast down out of heaven. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that a third of his angels were cast down with him. So the Bible does not record the sin and the fall of Satan. Uh, Genesis 3, a lot of us uh, know, know it as the original sin, but uh, truth be told, uh, there was a sin that preceded this. It was the sin of Satan and his pride, not wanting to worship God, but be like God, and him being cast out of heaven along with his angels. So what we read in Genesis 3 is actually uh, the recording of the first human sin. Not the very first sin. Um, moving on. The serpent was more crafty. Let me stop there. Um, let me just say this. Satan is smarter than you. Um, we think we're all pretty smart. We think we're pretty wise. We think we've... Um, been around the block and we kind of understand how the world works and where pitfalls are. Satan is smarter than you. He's been around longer than you. And he has wrecked the lives of people smarter, greater, and more gifted than you. He is crafty, the scriptures tell us. He is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat 
of any tree in the garden? In other words, here's what Satan does. Here's what the serpent does. And he begins to interact with the woman. He's saying, is that really what God said? So if you remember the story from last week, God made the earth and he said that it was, it was good. God made man and then he said, it's not good for man to be alone. And, uh, and then he made woman, Genesis 1 and 2. And so God made this woman. He brought her to the man. They were married. They were naked. They were without shame. And everything that God made was very, very good. God spoke to them. God cared for them. God loved them. And he spoke and he said this. He said, you can eat of any tree that I've given to you in the garden with the exception of one. He said, do not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you partake of it, you will surely die. And so when he says this, he means this is spiritual death. It's separation between God and man. And eventual physical death will enter into the picture for the very first time. Did God say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what he said? No, not at all. God is a good God. He loves us. He provides for us. He cares for us. And he says, you can partake of any tree but one. So what Satan is doing here to the woman is he is changing and manipulating the word of God. So, here at Providence, we take the Bible literally. We, we, we call it uh, the inspired Word of God. Every bit of it is true. So we don't try to change it. We don't add to it. We don't subtract to it. We don't try to make it fit into a new narrative. And that's exactly what Satan does here to God's Word. He changes God's Word to fit it into a narrative, to get us to stumble and into fall. Church, friends, don't fall for that. Don't do that. If you change God's word, if you manipulate God's word, you're doing exactly what Satan did here at the fall. You're saying, is that really what God said? Well, you know what? I don't feel like it should be, so I'm going to change this to make it fit my life and my narrative and my way. All Satan does is he adds one word here in Genesis 3. One word to change its entire meaning. And the word is any. Any tree. Just one little word. What, what's the big deal? Well, here we're going to see that you either take God at his word exactly as he gives it to us and we don't add to it and we don't subtract from it because if we do, if we take God's word and we manipulate it into our own narrative to fit our agenda, every single time we see this happening, the result is total devastation. Sin, loss, death, pain, heartache. And the woman responds here. Verse 2. 
And the woman said to the serpent. Um, so we, hear, we, we see the woman begins to engage the serpent. So this is just a quick little lesson here. Um, there are some conversations that are prompted in our lives that we simply should not even engage in. Um, some of us are just far too nice and we're far too accommodating and we're far too um, uh, just go with the flow and we engage in conversations that are at their core and foundation entirely destructive. Some examples of this. Gossip, slander, hearsay, lies, deceptive talk, decisive, or, uh, deceptive talk, divisive talk. So, Church, let me just encourage you if, you, are, if you find yourself engaging in this type of talk, or maybe it starts off really innocently as a conversation, and it starts leading down paths that involve lies, and involve uh, destructive conversation, it involves um, slander, it involves all of these things, or even one of these things, do not engage in it. Um, don't participate in it. Walk away. Turn your back on that which is here, what we're going to see is satanic type of talk, and walk away from it. Nothing can be gained through it. Nothing good results in gossip, slander, and divisive talk. Um, so many of us are sucked into this type of conversation so easily. Um, it almost can become so easy to walk into, even now on social media platforms, you just walk into divisive, slanderous conversations, um, and you can pop in and pop out and pop into it and pop out, and, it, and it's, it's divisive, and it's satanic, and it divides people, it incites anger and malice and rage. Um, and here Eve engages in that. She becomes deceived by Satan. So when a conflicting voice comes into her life, she begins to engage this conversation. So church, just on a real practical level, who are you listening to? What books are you reading? What are you filling your mind with? What voices occupy the corners of your conscience and your every day and your life? What is motivating you? What, what voices drive you? What radio is informing you? What friends have your ear? What are they whispering to you? Is it good, godly, sound, wisdom pointing you and leading you in uh, godly advice to the feet of Jesus? Or is it not? Should you be involved in all of the different dialogues that you find yourselves involved in? And here, Eve responds to the serpent's question. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, 
You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No. God did not say that they couldn't touch it. Here, Eve adds to God's word. Many of us love to do this. We like to add to God's word. We like to pepper in our experience, our emotion, uh, our, our, uh, our preferences, our history, our traditions, our culture. And we like to say, well, God said this, but I also like this. And so God must also. We like to just sandwich those things right in there. And we so easily love to give our two cents. And if we're not careful in doing so, um, we will add and alter what God said. And we'll forget what he actually said and we'll begin to propagate what we feel or what we think he should have said to other people. That's dangerous. The serpent responds. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Um, Here's what Satan is saying. He's saying, God is a liar. God is withholding from you. There are wonderful, great, enjoyable things that you are missing out on because God is holding out on you. He is not giving you all that you should get. You deserve more, you deserve better, and God is lying to you. Um, Church, if you believe that God is lying to you, or maybe you couch it in the way that I think maybe Eve believed here, that God is withholding from you something that you deserve, Um, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a possession, maybe it's an experience, maybe it's an accomplishment, maybe it's a position, you will begin to be filled with discontentedness and distrust in God. And you will try to circumvent what he said to get what you want. Satan goes on to continue to deceive. Listen to what he does. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, God is holding you back, in other words. Satan is going to tell you. God is not giving you all that you deserve. Um, Sin is going to be creep in and whisper to you and say things like, you're incredible, you're amazing, you have so much potential, and God is the one who's not allowing you to capitalize on all these things. And so this is the temptation. The temptation is to walk away from God and in doing so, you'll exchange something or someone uh, for God, believing that there's a higher treasure out there for you, that you just need to attain it. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was one, good for food, and two, was a delight to the eyes, and three, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
uh, underline these things. First John chapter 2, John talks about the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These can be easily uh, thought of as three categories of sin. Um, the lust of the flesh, would it taste good? Would it feel good? The lust of the eyes, is it attractive? Does it make me look good? Does it look good for me? And the boastful pride of life, it would make me like God. My eyes would now fully be opened. I'd be self-actualized. I would know all that I need to know. This is exactly what Satan is doing here to Eve. It looked good. It was going to feel good. Um, and it was going to make me wise like God. So sin, when it creeps into our lives, it's going to come m mostly in these ways. Through physical pleasure, um, through visual observation, and it will always tempt and test your pride. It will fan a fire in your ego. What does she do? Scripture says she took of it, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Um, so we've been given a little insight into the serpent's interactions with Eve and a lot of times uh, guys like to point the finger and blame Eve for the fall but guys um, let's look again very obviously here men this is your father Adam where was he? Where was Adam, men, in the fall? He was with her. He was right there. Listen to this. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Men, this is our father, Adam. Men, feel this. I need... We need to sense this. We need to feel the gravity of this moment. What is Adam doing right here? What is Adam doing as the serpent has slithered into the perfect place where it was God and man and woman in perfect harmony seeking to bear the image of God on earth? And the serpent walks in and begins to whisper lies. What does Adam do? Nothing. What does Adam do? Nothing. Adam does nothing. Adam sits there silently as the serpent enters into the garden, begins a conversation with his wife, and tempts her toward sin. He says nothing, and he does nothing. Remember, just verses before this, 
Adam had just sang to his wife this beautiful tender moment. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. This is the one whom I've been waiting for. My equal taken out of my side that we can stand side by side and worship God on earth in this paradise that he'd given to us. He was appointed to love and protect and image God on earth with this woman. And men, what is Adam doing when Satan is lying about God and tempting his wife? Nothing. One of the very worst things that men can do is nothing. Um, We all too often live in a culture uh, inside the church and outside the church, quite frankly, of men that say nothing, that do nothing, um, and that stand passively by. Uh, Some men, yes, abuse their power. Some become harsh, some become mean, some yell and scream at their wives and children and demand and domineer uh, their authority in certain situations. And some abandon the responsibility. They give up, they run away, they walk away, they stay quiet, they put their head down, and they don't make waves. Um, And they cower. They oftentimes give away the responsibility to other people. Someone else love and care for my wife. Someone else love and provide for and care for my children. Someone else lead my church. Someone else lead my home. Someone else uh, lead them spiritually. Someone else lead my wife to the feet of Jesus. There's plenty of great resources out there. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Uh, Some men abuse and some abandon. And this all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Our father, Adam. So men, when when I said, when we read this, we need to feel this. Because we are prone to these things. And here's the danger in men that do nothing like we saw Adam do. Um, men that do nothing and say nothing and stand up for nothing can say this, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, Just ask me. I don't do drugs. Uh, I don't look at pornography. I don't uh, yell and scream. I don't, whatever it is, right? They can sit back and passively say, well, I don't do those things. So I'm a good person. I've got this figured out. Well, there's two types of sins in the Bible. Um, There's the sin of commission, which is doing the wrong thing, which is going against what God says and doing the wrong thing. And then there's the sin of omission. And the sin of omission is not doing the right thing. The sin of omission 
uh, is doing nothing at all. It's omitting responsibility. It's passing the buck. It's kicking the can. Um, And the sin of omission is a subtle one that is rampant in the Bible Belt and rampant in churches because men can sit back, and I'm using men because it's pointed out here, men and women both can do this, of course. Um, But Adam gives us a very clear example here. So guys, I'm going to beat up on you. That we can sit back and say, I'm a good guy. But the scripture says no. Uh, The sin of omission is just as perverse and evil and wrong as the sin of commission. Because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not doing that which you were created and made to do. What you should have been doing, Adam, is rebuking Satan. Not sitting down and listening to him as he tempts your wife. Uh, What you should have been doing is going back to pointing your face toward God, not giving ear to false lies. What you should have been doing is loving your wife and stepping in to defend her in this time of need. So men... uh, How involved are you right now in your life, in the spiritual lives of your wives, in the spiritual nourishment of your children, in the leadership of the local church? Here we have a silent, passive man. And today the world and the church is filled with men just like this. So, I'm imploring us as we look at the fall of men, it's men and women, to look at Adam and say, These, this is our tendency. Our tendency is to say and do nothing, to save face. To sit back and let the world go by and let sin happen and say nothing and do nothing about it. And then let our wives and children participate in it and say, I didn't do anything. We are prone to this. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Um, when God made us, He made us for relationship with Him. He made us for relationship with each other. He made us for relationship um, uh, with Himself. And sin stains and tarnishes all relationships. So before, if you remember, before the serpent entered in and before they ate of this fruit, they were naked and they were not ashamed at all. They were fully known. And there was no shame. Now, what do we see? As sin entered in, we see distance between the man and the woman. They cover themselves. It's, I don't trust you. 
Uh, you don't trust me. Uh, we're no longer one, but we're two. Uh, we sense distance. You cover up your sin, I'll cover up my sin. Uh, you're in this on your own. You're in this on your own. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said to his wife, and the man and his wife, I'm sorry, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When we fall into sin, and we do so so easily, uh, we become very foolish very quickly. And we hide from God, and we hide ourselves from each other. And shame creeps in, and we cover up sin, and we think so foolishly that we can hide from God, the maker of all created things, behind a tree. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, um, who did God, here, here we see another, another interesting thing. Who did God hold responsible for all of this? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, he calls to him. Not to them, he calls to him. Where are you? That's a great question. You talk about a philosophical question. Where are you? Are you hiding from the Lord? The one that made all things, the one that made you? Are you so steeped in shame and guilt and sin that you're hiding from him? That you've covered yourself up thinking that if I just put on enough layers and if I get behind all these things that God won't see me? Where are you, God said? And here's an interesting change as well. Here we have Adam. He says, I, he responds. And notice here in this long uh, exchange, we go from a husband and a wife of two becoming one, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, we have a lot of eyes and you and accusing. This is what sin does in the confines and context of marriage. Uh, I did this. You did that. I didn't do this. You did that. Um, you, I, he did, she did. We lose we and we lose us and we become I and you. Listen to this. No longer allies, but enemies. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Lots of I talk. And God um, gets right to the point. He said, who told you you were naked? Very direct. Uh, he doesn't beat around the bush. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said this, The woman who you gave to be with me. Um, here we see that again. 
passive talk of Adam. When sin entered and Adam did nothing and said nothing and God confronts him on that sin, he passes the buck. He doesn't confess and say, Lord, I sinned, forgive me. God, I, I just, I want to be back in right relationship to you. I repent, I for, forgive me, please. I've led my wife astray, I failed. He doesn't do that. He shifts blame. He covers up. He says, the woman, God, the woman you gave me. Not only does he blame the woman, he subtly blames God. God, this is your fault. Everything was fine before you gave me this woman and she came in and did this to me. I'm a victim, God. Sin makes us all a victim. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. He takes no responsibility. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So the woman here is equally as responsible, we see. And what does she do? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She kicks the can down even further. She blames someone else as well. The devil made me do it. How many of us have heard that? Blame shifting, uh, passing the buck, taking no responsibility. Verse 14, God then turns to the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, here's judgment, judgment of God coming down. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Underline this in your Bible, if you have your Bible and you're following along. Because here we're given for the first time um, the gospel. It's called the Proto-Evangel. The very first time the gospel is shown to us in the Bible and it's given to us in Genesis chapter 3. God says this, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, he's talking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. Now what's interesting here is what you think is a war is going to be played out between the children of uh, the evil one and man. But what's interesting here is that her offspring is not plural. It's singular. Galatians 3 and 4 help us understand this. And it tells us that this singular offspring that's going to come from Eve is Jesus. Genesis chapter 3 is giving us hope in the garden after the fall, after the, the taste of that fruit is still in their mouth, that God is beginning already the rescue plan to bring and make right that which was made wrong through one that is going to come. Jesus, from the seed of the woman, this is pointing to the virgin birth of one that will come. Normally when any, when, when any uh, birth is talked about in 
in the Bible, it's, it's usually referenced in terms of from a, this father. Here, at the beginning, we're given the seed of the woman. This one, this the, the one is coming. That through Eve will come someone that will do and wage war against Satan and his offspring. And Satan will harm him, will harm this one, but the one to come from Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Um, he will be the, the dragon slayer that will defeat the dragon, the language we're given in Revelation. This is the promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our hope, our Rescuer, to right the sin that so easily entangles us. So it goes on. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. That's Jesus crushing the serpent's head. And you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. That's the cross. Yes, you will get a blow against him. But the very thing that you think will defeat him will actually crush your head. Someone is coming from the seed of woman that will crush the head of Satan once and for all. And though Satan, yes, you will bruise Jesus. He will hang on a cross. It will be bloody. It will be horrible. Jesus, you will crush the head of this one that came and deceived. And God is saying that here in the garden. That the day is coming when you, Satan, not just your offspring, when you, Satan, will be defeated and removed from the earth. The offspring of woman will crush you. That decisive blow was struck by the perfect offspring of woman, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. This is why, church, this is the very reason why the eternal Son of God had to be a man. Because it was the offspring of woman that would crush Satan that was revealed to us in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the fulfillment of that which was said in Genesis chapter 3 by God himself. God gave us the very first gospel. One day, this day is going to come that is going to reverse the effects of sin and passivity and error and hiding and shame. And this one, Jesus, is the one that we are going to continue to look at at weeks ahead as we continue to look at the overarching, redeeming work of Jesus as he puts the pieces of the puzzle back together to heal us of sin and brokenness and passivity and fracturedness. God longs to make us whole and he has done the work and we just need to look to this one that has come, Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in your providence, in your great care, in your great plan, God, even there at the very, very beginning in Genesis 3, you enacted a rescue plan of all of humanity that you would bring us back into right relationship with you. No more hiding, no more shame, no more guilt, God. And that you would decisively deal with this problem that we have inherited from Adam. And Lord, you would bring about um, a new humanity founded and rooted in and based on our Lord Jesus Christ, the new Adam, in whom we can stand and have life. 
and life to the full. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.